Um, we talked about this last week. We are entering into the season of Advent. If we do this every year for the past few years, if you're interested in receiving text to your phone or an email if you'd like it, uh, just giving you a thought to reflect on, a way to pray, or something to listen to uh, to prepare your heart during this season of Advent, you can follow the instructions there. Uh, you can text the word at advent-ecc to the number 81010, uh, and those will start tomorrow morning. Uh, or if you would rather get it by email, you can email us at ecc at ecclife.net, and we will uh, uh, sign you up for that. And the other thing is, uh, we do put a lot of stuff in the Bible app each week, and I like to just bring this up every once in a while. And uh, the Bible app uh, you can, is a version Bible app. You can find it wherever you get your apps. When you've downloaded it and so forth, when you open it up, you click on more, click on events, and if you have your location services turned on, uh, you should see our live event popping up there. And we have questions for reflection, we have resources, some things that tie into the sermon, and there's a ton of stuff there in terms of connecting with ECC a little better, so I want to encourage you to do that. I want to just open with a bit of silence and prayer before we start. Come, Lord Jesus, our light and life, as we enter into the season of Advent together, remembering your first coming, preparing for your second coming, opening ourselves up to the ways that you come to us every single day, Lord. Guard our hearts, teach us well, help us to learn and to listen and to love you well. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we live in anxious and divided times, which may have become clearer for some of us over the past few days around the Thanksgiving table if you were gathered with your extended family and perhaps experienced awkward moments whenever politics or race or vaccines or the latest conspiracy theory was brought up by a crazy uncle or a crazy aunt or a crazy in-law. If you don't know who that is in your family, it's probably you. We live in divided and anxious times, but we are not the first to do so. We will certainly not be the last to do so, because that's just the nature of what it means to live our lives on planet Earth. It was the case in ancient Judah and Israel, too. Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians in the late 8th century B.C., and the Assyrians began to war against the southern kingdom of Judah after that, and Jerusalem was attacked in 701 B.C., the prophet Isaiah's ministry took place from about 742 to 701 B.C. Some people think it may have gone uh, deeper into the next century, into 681, as, as long as 681 B.C. Either way, as I've said, they were living in anxious and divided times. By the time we get, the prophet Isaiah gets to our passage in chapter 2 this morning, he has recited a litany of difficult realities, recounting all the ways that they have already uh, been assaulted by the realities of life at the hands of the Assyrians, and he is naming their sin and rebellion and promising that if they don't straighten up, even more judgment is headed their way. Chapter 1 is a harsh word against God's people for meaningless offerings and half-hearted worship and for their failure to defend the fatherless and the widow and to do justice. Toward the end of chapter 1, verse 24, God says that he will turn his hand against them. He will vent his wrath on them and purge them from their sin. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, there's a, there's a hint of hope. We see that God's purging 
and perhaps we should say the purpose of God's purging, is to lead toward restoration. Once God has removed their sins and their impurities, he says this in verse 26. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. Did you, did you catch that? All this little bit of hope there, and right at the end, we're snapped back to reality with this promise of more judgment. And the rest of chapter 1 is about judgment. Then comes chapter 2, and for a brief moment, there is hope once again. Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5, is an island of hope surrounded by seas of judgment and chaos and rebellion. It is, it is an oasis of life in the, in the desert of judgment. And when we get to verse 6, after our passage, the seas of chaos and judgment will rush back in once again. So let's hear, once again, what Isaiah has to say, what hope Isaiah has to offer God's people and us today as we enter into this first week of Advent in our own version of Anxious and Divided Times. Isaiah 2, verses 1 and 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Why this word of hope in, the, in, in this word of promise in the midst of sin and rebellion and injustice and judgment? This word of hope is here because it is in the midst of chaos and judgment that we most need to hear a word of hope. It is in the midst of chaos and judgment that we most need this word of hope. God's people have been attacked, as I said, by the Assyrians, and later they're going to be attacked and they're going to be taken into exile by the Babylonians. And right in the middle, there is this odd, almost out-of-place promise of a time that will come when the mountain of God's temple will be higher than any other mountain and the nations will stream to the temple. Now consider the dissonance. Consider how Isaiah's words must have clashed with what their eyes told them. Consider the deep incongruity they had to experience between this word from the Lord and the reality in which they were living, the rising sea of despair all around them. This word is here for us during the season of Advent, because this is where we live our lives, in the midst of real life, real struggles, chaos, in particular over the past three years, and a divisive culture of cancellation and animosity. And yet, those of us who know Christ know that this is not the end, and it is not what God has in mind for us either. There is hope. So by giving us this picture of hope, God helps his people to see the difference between the world that is and the world that is yet to come. And that picture can help us too. So the season of Advent is the beginning of the church year. I talked a little bit about this last week. The church year was developed hundreds of years ago as a teaching tool. Uh, in a time when the masses were mostly illiterate and simply uh, very few people had access to a Bible. Uh, that really, that kind of access to the Bible didn't really happen until long after the printing press was invented in at least the mid-1500s and following. By following the rhythms of the church year then, Christians were taught salvation history even if they couldn't read. And I find this diagram to be helpful. It is in the Bible app live event. You see the picture of the church year as a circle. 
takes us from Advent to Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and then you have something called ordinary time. Ordinary time is the time in which we live. The time when we depend on the Holy Spirit and we wait for Christ's return. And then at the end of the year, you come back to that, what we had last week, Christ the King Sunday, the end of the year, and you start it all over again with the first Sunday in Advent, and that's today. The temptation during this season of Advent is to become too focused on the Christmas story itself too soon without first remembering the longing for deliverance that preceded it. This is why we spend time in the words of Isaiah the prophet. For the people of Judah who heard Isaiah's words, this promise of the temple exalted high above the mountains so that all the nations in the world could see it and could stream to it was almost unimaginable. It must have seemed pie in the sky, optimism, almost laughable. What are you talking about, Isaiah? Look around. That's nowhere near happening. God's promise in Isaiah 2 is anchored in God's promise to Abram when He called him to leave his family back in Genesis 12, to leave his family, to leave his land, to leave his people and go to a land that God would show him. And if he would do that, God promised, he would make of Abram's descendants a nation, and through that nation, God would bless all peoples, all families of the earth. So this is is not a picture of political or military victory. It is a picture, as Revelation puts it, of of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation streaming to the temple to worship the living God. It is a picture of God keeping his promise to Abram. But the nations will not merely stream to the temple to know God or to worship God. There's more. Verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we walk in his paths because the law, instruction, will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem. The New International Version of uh, translation of our Bibles does not include that word because there, but it is in the Hebrew. It is connecting these things. And the word translated as law is often translated as teaching or instruction. It is not merely that people will come to faith in God, in the God of Israel. It is that God will teach them and us to live differently, to walk in God's paths. The ultimate goal is not that people will stream in for worship and fill the place up and create a megachurch. The ultimate goal is that they will learn to walk in God's ways and follow Him in His paths. And may the same be true for us. This is a promise that God makes that will ultimately be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus, speaking of His crucifixion, says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Actually, the word people is not in the Greek. It just says all. All things. Everything. That certainly includes people, but as I read it, it means all of creation. The entirety of the cosmos will be drawn to Christ. One day, Isaiah says, the nations, the Gentiles will stream to the temple to be taught to walk and to live in the ways of God. It's an ancient promise of, really, a kind of discipleship. And yet, even then, there's more yet to come in this vision of the world as it will one day be. Verse 4, He, God, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation 
will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The picture here is of a peaceful and just resolution to all conflicts. Conflicts will be resolved so fully and so faithfully that there will no longer be any war. There will no longer be any need to study war or to train for war. And there will no, be no more need for weapons. Swords will be beaten into plowshares, spears, into pruning hooks. This past summer, the police department of Sacramento, California, had a gas-for-guns buyback event. People, people could come to that event, turn in any unwanted firearms they had, no questions asked, and receive a $50 gas card in return. They expected the event to last about five hours, but within the first hour, all the gas cards were gone. And yet people still continued to come and to turn in unwanted guns for several hours without any concern for all, at all that they didn't receive a gas card. By the end of event, the event, 134 people had turned in firearms, including one assault weapon, components of privately manufactured guns, and according to police, quote, multiple other illegally configured firearms. Now, at events like this that take place in other parts of the country, and maybe at this one too, these weapons are then decommissioned and they are sent to organizations that take them and refashion them into gardening tools. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, guns into garden tools. Peace. Isaiah ends this section with an invitation to God's people in verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. He reminds them of their heritage. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, descend from Jacob, who descends from Isaac, who descends from Abraham, the one to whom all these promises were made. Isaiah reminds them of who they are, and he says to them, look, if this is where God is taking all things, if God's promise is that one day the nations will stream to the temple and the temple and the mountain of the temple will be higher than any other temple and there will be peace, if this is where God is taking all things, sisters and brothers, let us do that now. Let us live like that now. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Back in the days when the church was trying to figure out in this country what to do with slavery, the people would get together, Christians would get together, and they would fight one another on this issue, pro-slavery or anti-slavery. And they would quote Bible verses to build up their case, both sides. But I have come to learn, not on my own, but I have come to learn that really they were not asking the right question. The right question should have been, will slavery exist in the new heavens and the new earth? Will slavery exist in the new creation? And the answer, of course, is no. And if it will not exist there we should be at work dismantling it now. Think about that. Let that work on you as you consider challenges in our society. Is what we're fighting over going to exist in the new heavens, the new earth? If not, we should be at work walking in the light of the Lord even now. In divided and anxious times, God gives a promise of peace and he invites us to walk with him and to enjoy his light even now. So our second passage for this week is from Romans 13. Just prior to the text that you heard read earlier, the Apostle Paul says this in verses 9 and 10. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says something similar a few times. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love of neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. The Torah. The instruction. The very instruction Isaiah told us would go out from Zion to teach us how to live, how to walk in the light of the Lord. And then Paul gets to our passage for this morning one more time. And do this, loving one another, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery. That's an old word you never hear anymore, but it means sensual indulgence, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is a strong call to those of us who name the name of Christ. If we are followers of Jesus, and if we have, as Paul puts it, if we have fallen asleep in the darkness of sin, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. And while it's tempting to hear Paul's words here as merely a rebuke, let's try to hear hear these words for the hope that they offer. The exhortation to wake up is because the night is almost over. The difficulty of the times in which we find ourselves, the anxious division and animosity and uncertainty is almost over. The day is almost here. Rise and shine. And when Paul lists out these deeds of darkness, if we have grown up in the evangelical church, we either feel uh, right at home in this list of things we should stop doing, or we feel condemned all over again like we were in the past. At least at first. Again, verse 13, Paul says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And many of us might go, yeah, stop those things. Those are bad things. But honestly, in these divided and anxious times, we might just brush over too quickly Paul's exhortation about dissension and jealousy. In the book of Romans, Paul was dealing with dissension as well. The Jews versus the Gentiles, they they simply weren't getting along with each other. You see that several places in his letters in the New Testament. They had their own version of divided and anxious times. And while many of us might easily see the sinfulness of sexual immorality and drunkenness and, and sensual indulgence and the like, we would do well to remember that our dissension and jealousy, our quarreling and division are every bit as sinful as anything else on the list. That doesn't usually get an amen. Our dissensions and division and quarreling and jealousies are every bit as sinful as everything else on the list. Thank you. Dissension and quarreling and the like can be transformed into peace and unity and harmony. That is, we can take the swords and the spears and the guns of animosity and cancel culture and culture wars and beat them into the 
plowshares into the garden tools of fellowship and servanthood and conversation and dialogue and hospitality and right relationships. Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin, Christian activists and writers, put it this way. The call to turn swords into plows is as much about transforming our way of life as it is about transforming a gun into a garden tool. It is as much about transforming our way of life as it is about transforming a gun into a garden tool. But moving beyond dissension and division and quarreling, I don't know if you figure this out, it's hard. It's hard. When everything around us is telling us this is how we're supposed to behave, it's hard. If it weren't difficult, we wouldn't need Isaiah or the Apostle Paul to teach us otherwise. So the good news is that there is something incredibly important and transformative at play in Romans 13 that was not at play in Isaiah chapter 2, Jesus. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, something has changed. Something is available to us now that was not available in Isaiah's time. While the people in Isaiah 2 might have been motivated to change their ways by the threat of judgment or by the promise of future reward if they shaped up, the people of Romans 13 and really all of the New Testament are motivated to change by a completely new reality. In Christ, God has entered into our world and the transformation from what is to what will be has already begun. New creation is available now. So whether we realize it or not, we have the power to live differently. We have the power to live and to walk as those who walk in the light of the Lord. Paul exhorts us to put aside our deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. This ties us back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And it ties us back to our passage from last week at the end of the book of Ephesians chapter 6, where we were told to put on the full armor of God. The full armor of God. The armor of light. These are the same thing. Paul goes on to clarify a bit in verse 14. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. To put on the full armor of God, to put on the armor of light, and now to walk in the light of the Lord is to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to surrender ourselves to Christ, to entrust our future to Christ as well as our present. It is to know that the day of our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It is to live into the day that has already begun to dawn upon the night of these anxious, divided times and to walk in the light of the Lord. So there are two ways to hear Isaiah's exhortation to walk in the light of the Lord. There are two ways really to hear the Apostle Paul's exhortations as well in Romans 13. We can hear it as an imperative Or we can hear it as an invitation. Both matter. To hear it as an imperative, as a command of sorts, is to know that there is a call to obedience to another way of life. We are not to live as those who do not have the power of the Holy Spirit within us and the reality of the new creation among us and around us. And all that does indeed 
demand something of us. It will take initiative and it will take effort. But it also promises the resources we need. We, we do not walk in the light of the Lord alone. To hear all this as an invitation is to know that responding to that invitation offers us the blessing of walking in the light that God has provided for us, a better place and a better way of life. To hear it as an invitation is to see in it not something we are supposed to do, but something we get to enjoy, something God has given us. So I'm going to leave you with a question. And I suppose in some way the answer might be both to this, but I'll leave it as a choice. Let's start there. Which do you need to respond to today? The imperative or the invitation? Which do you need to respond to today? The imperative or the invitation to live into the gift and the promise and the light God has given us in Jesus? Do you need to surrender your life to Christ perhaps for the first time? Or do you need to wake up from your slumber, tap into the powerful presence of new creation and the gift that God's Holy Spirit has given us by dwelling within us and live as Christ calls us to live? By the grace of God, both the invitation and the imperative are available to us even now. Which do you need to respond to? The imperative or the invitation? Would you pray with me? Lord God, almighty and everlasting Father, we thank you that it is because of you that we exist at all. We thank you that in Christ you hold all things together. We thank you that you have given us your spirit to speak to us, to lead us, to shape us, to empower us. And I ask, Lord, wherever we might be in answering these two questions, God, would you nudge us in the right direction? Would you give us the grace to respond, to cry out to you, to confess our need of a Savior, and to ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us and to move us forward, or to wake us up from our slumber, to let go of things we need to let go of, and to embrace all that you have for us. And Lord, would you help us to see all these things as a gift? Would you help us to know that we do not do this alone? And would you empower us, Lord God, to continue to walk in your light from this day forward? We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior, our Teacher, and our Lord. Amen.